You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Good morning, church. We're going to be in Revelation chapter 3. We're going to read verses 1 through 6. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, you have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard, keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Janet. Church family, good to see you here this Sunday morning. Glad you're with us. If you're a guest among us and I haven't had the chance to meet you yet, my name is Shay Sumlin, one of the pastors here. So grateful you're with us. Uh, if you've got a Bible with you, go ahead. If you're not there already, turn to Revelation chapter 3, towards the end of your Bible there. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the seat back somewhere in front of you. That's our gift to you. But Revelation chapter 3, we're looking at these seven churches that find themselves in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, first century, Jesus writes to these churches, each one is addressed, and ultimately what we're looking at in these letters is what marks of faithfulness look like in a church in a day of compromise. And thus far, we've seen kind of a theme for each church of what faithfulness is or should look like. And we started, if you think about it, the map that we've been looking at, this kind of postal route is where this letter is circulating. A courier is taking one letter and it's just bringing it to each church, and they'll read everybody else's mail. And we started with the theme of faithfulness in the area of love as we went to Ephesus, right there in western Turkey on the, uh, the, the shore of the Aegean Sea. And then the letter moved up, went up to Smyrna, just north of that, looked at faithfulness in the area of suffering. From there, it went up to Pergamum, where we looked at faithfulness in the area of worship, And then we kind of hooked a right, started heading southeast, went down to Thyatira. We looked at last week, faithfulness in the area of work. This week, we're going to go about 35 miles southeast of Thyatira. And we are going to come to the city of Sardis, where we are going to look at the area of faithfulness as it is seen in the truth that the church is to hold fast to faithfulness and truth. Now, much like each of these letters, we've got to understand this letter in the context of the history of the city in many ways. When it comes to Sardis, like Pergamum, Sardis is built with really two cities, a lower city and a higher city that was built up called an Acropolis up on a mountain that's just overlooking the lower city. And the uh, city of Sardis is really kind of put on the map around 1400 BC, just prior to uh, the Trojan War is when this city was settled. And we know that by the time the 7th century comes around, it's about 680 BC, this became the very first place on earth to begin minting coins. Minting coins as currency. It was right here in Sardis. 
And uh, the reason was is because a lot of the wealth that the city was associated with. In the 7th century, Sardis got put on the map by the Lydian kingdom. The Lydian kingdom kind of ruled and reigned over this area and anchored out of Sardis. And it was a city with incredible wealth. If you've ever heard the, the fable or the story of King Midas, everything that he touched turned to gold, the backdrop of that fable is in Sardis. Uh, King Midas, the fable says that everything he touched turned to gold. That was not true. But however, it was the gold that was found along the Pactolus River in that valley around Sardis where the Lydian kingdom discovered the gold that was there. And they began minting out of that gold. And so it became a very, very wealthy city. And uh, this is where two stories begin to emerge that are gonna color the backdrop of this letter we're about to read. And the first story begins sixth century BC, King Croesus will become the last of the Lydian kings. And at the time was the wealthiest king in the world. Some of you may have even heard, if you've had a classical education, you've heard the old phrase that was popular back in the day is that you're as rich as Croesus. That was King Croesus here. And in order to protect this great wealth that he had, he built a citadel a fortified city up on top of the mountain overlooking Sardis, 1,500 feet up. And he built this citadel to protect all his wealth, put his palace in the middle of it, way up top. And it was seen as utterly impenetrable because the sheer slope of the mountain and then the fortified walls, which by the way, are still up there. I hiked this thing several years ago, about ended my life in doing it, but made it to the top. And those walls, some of those walls are still there of the original fortification that King Croesus built. And the story comes into play. The first story is in the mid-6th century, the Persians are kind of expanding their empire. And under King Cyrus, who is referenced in our Bible, is making his way from the east to try to come westward and conquer the land that Sardis was in. And under King Cyrus, as he was getting near King Croesus started to get a little worried. And so he wanted to know what to do about this. So King Croesus actually went over to Greece, consulted with the oracle that was at Delphi to try to get a word on what should I do. And the oracle told King Croesus this, essentially, this cryptic statement that said, if you were to cross the Hales River, which would be in Persian territory, then you are going to destroy a great kingdom. Now, of course, King Croesus took that as, all right, green light. I'm going to cross the Hales River. I'm going to go war against them, and I'm going to destroy their great kingdom. Not realizing the great kingdom that would be destroyed was his own. And so sure enough, he does. He crosses, gets whooped, and by Cyrus, has to retreat and take some of his special forces, and they go back to Sardis, and they barricade themselves up in the citadel, and they're hiding in the synagogue. Now, Cyrus eventually comes in, lays siege to Sardis, and then he figures out they cannot find a way in to get up this slope and to get over these walls and to take out Croesus. And so they waited for months on end, and then finally, one day, one of the Persian soldiers was watching one of the the Lydian soldiers up on the wall and noticed he dropped his helmet. And then the soldier disappeared And then a few moments later, reappeared with his helmet back on. And they realized there must be a secret door that's down below that we haven't found. That's how he got out. So sure enough, that night, 
Cyrus orders his army to go around the other side of the Acropolis and creates a distraction. So Croesus sends all his army to that side of the Acropolis while Cyrus then sends his special forces through that hidden door and goes in and takes the entire citadel. So just when Croesus thought he was safe, he was not. And in fact, what's interesting, just side note here, um, Isaiah the prophet prophesied that Cyrus would take this citadel a hundred years before it happened. You can go read about it in Isaiah 45. The Bible ain't messing around, calling shots, making shots. That's what God does. Now, interestingly enough, when the Persians take over, one of the first things they did is they built what's called the Royal Road. We talked about this last week. It goes from Susa back in uh, Iran. It goes all the way across up to Thyatira and Sardis into Europe. And this is where all the textile trades started coming in. Now, whereas Thyatira was put on the map for its purple dyes, we talked about that last week, Sardis gets put on the map for its amazing white wool. And in fact, becomes the leading manufacturer in the Gre- what would be eventually the Greco-Roman Empire for their creation of what's known as a hymation. We would call it a toga. So the toga is invented right here in Sardis and we become popularized in Greece and in Rome. And they specialize this here. Now, eventually, the Persians would fall. Alexander the Great will come in, 334, knock out the Persians. Eventually, Alexander the Great's gonna die. He wills all his territories to his generals. Not any kids, he wills them to his generals. One of the generals, Antiochus III, takes over Sardis. And Antiochus III, under his reign and rulership, something interesting happens. Um, Antiochus goes off to war, and while he is gone, when he leaves Sardis, one of his generals announces, I'm the new king, and forms a coup, and goes up and takes Sardis. When Antiochus hears about this, he goes all the way back to Sardis to find his general Achaeus and his men hiding up in the citadel, barricading themselves in. Sound familiar? Here we go. Story two. It takes Antiochus nearly two years to figure out how to get back into his own fortress. Clearly, they had patched the hidden door problem from hundreds of years earlier. Well, now in 213 BC, one day, uh, Antiochus' army notices that there is a place on the wall where vultures are gathering. It's the place where they would discard dead bodies and food that was not going to be eaten, and the vultures would gather to eat. But they noticed the vultures would perch on this wall, and they would never move the whole day, which indicated to them there must not be a patrol that goes back and forth on this section of the wall, otherwise the birds would scurry. And so sure enough, that night, in the middle of the night, while everyone was sleeping, Antiochus sends his army on that side of the wall and they overtake the citadel. And so just when Achaeus thought he was safe, he was not. And so two times now in the history of Sardis, this citadel falls. And just about all historians believe a citadel of this nature on an Acropolis this high up, 1,500 feet up, should have never been taken. The only reason it would fall is due to a a lack of unprotected negligence caused uh, 
that caused these defeats and allowed this stronghold to be taken out. So over time, Sardis develops a reputation that is known in the history books as this great city that on the outside looks strong and fortified and so alive, but internally, the reality was they were weak, they were unprotected, and it led to their death quite a bit. Eventually, even in 17 AD, an earthquake hit this region, caused the entire half of the face of the Acropolis to avalanche down and actually took out one half of the population of Sardis, died. Now, that's one area of backdrop on the story. There's another area that we need to pay attention to as well. In the days that would follow, when the Romans would come in and take out the Seleucid kingdom, take out uh, the remnants of the Greek empire, the Romans, when they would come in, they did something different. They developed a great reputation for syncretism. Because when they would go into a place, they didn't always drive out the gods of the former uh, civilization as other empires would and then establish their own. They just simply adopted the gods that already existed. And they copied and pasted them and used them as their own. And in all their conquerings, this would happen. And this continued very prominently in Sardis of this syncretism that would happen in Sardis all the way through the fourth century even, long after this letter was written. And this wasn't just with the Lydians before them and then the Greeks and the Romans. This even included the Jewish population that was in Sardis as well. And one of the ways we know this is because in the excavations of Sardis, they uncovered the largest synagogue that has ever been found on earth that is outside of Jerusalem. And this was fascinating. This thing is massive. And it tells you, one, that they had a very large Jewish population to have something this big. Also tells you there was a lot of wealth that was associated with that Jewish population. Um, that there was some sort of privileged status in Sardis that you're not going to find in really any of the other cities. Now, this synagogue dates back to the 4th century, so well after this letter was written. But the foundations of the synagogue, they have dated as early as the second and even maybe the first century. Um, and so there's some history going on here. Two things make this discovery very peculiar in addition to the size of it. One is what they found on the inside. On the inside of the synagogue, they found 80 inscriptions of Jews who were donors to the synagogue who funded it, but their names were all written in Greek, which was unusual um, for them not to use their Hebrew names. But Paul would do it as a Christian, as a means of contextualizing and reaching a city with the gospel, but Jews historically weren't noted with that kind of proselyte contextualization. In addition to that, the lectern that was at the front of the sanctuary where the Torah would have been read was unusually large to match the synagogue. It didn't look like a usual lectern. It looked more like a Greek bema seat, a judgment seat. It looked like an altar. And even more peculiar than that, on its legs of this lectern, there is an eagle on both sides carrying thunderbolts. Why is that unusual? Because that is not a Jewish symbol. That's the symbol of Zeus. That's the symbol of the Roman Empire on a Jewish lectern where the Torah would be read. And not only that, on either side of the lectern are these lions. And you're going, okay, well, maybe that was Lion of Judah, Genesis 49. But as you come to find out, it's actually the symbol 
of a Lydian god, Sybil. And in fact, the faces of the lions are shaved off, which would have been in keeping with Jewish commands not to have icons, not to have images, but yet they've got this entire two statues that are the god of Sybil that's going on there. So you're like, what is happening in this? In addition to that, there's artistic reliefs that were found all around the perimeter of this synagogue with images of Lydian gods that were on it. So what in the world is happening in this Jewish synagogue with so many blended idols that are in there of the culture around them? In addition to that, there's something even stranger that was found. And it wasn't in the synagogue, it's what they found outside the synagogue. Bordering the synagogue, sharing a wall with the synagogue is a massive Roman gymnasium and bathhouse. Now, when you think about gymnasium in Roman times, let me help your thinking a little bit. Don't think hairy back, sweaty dude on a treadmill doing some leg lifts, you know, or whatever. Don't think that Zyle gym. Back in this day, long before news apps and insta feeds and private schools and co-ops, the gym, the Roman gym and the bathhouses is where you went to be educated. It's where you would come and you would sit next to someone, you would share ideas and you would debate philosophies and you would really educate one another on what's going on and what you're to believe and to practice. So you're not just working out your body, you're working out your mind. Now, why is this significant? Because in just about every other synagogue that has ever been found in the diaspora, in the outside of Jerusalem, in the scattering of Jews, when they find a synagogue, almost always what shares a wall with the synagogue is a Jewish school. A Jewish school where your primary textbook all the way through middle school and high school is the Bible. Your primary teacher is your parents and a local rabbi. In Sardis, there was no such school found here. Instead, they shared a wall with the Roman gym and bathhouse. There's a door that connects through the wall into the synagogue, which meant it wasn't the rabbi whom they were learning from. It was Rome. It wasn't the word of God that was forming them. It was the world. Now, this is the third and fourth century fruit that came from a first and second century seedbed that we see addressed here in this letter. Put all these things together. The problem in Sardis is going to be different than that of Pergamum and Thyatira, where you have the kind of these binary forms of compromise, where I'm going to worship my God here with me privately, but then when I go into the public spaces, I'll worship the, the other gods uh, that are of the city. No, this was altogether different. The problem in Sardis is that of full-on syncretism. Tolerance that now merges these two together. So rather than I worship my God, you worship your God, let's just bring them all together. And let's intertwine our worldviews. Let's intertwine our beliefs. And I, I can get what I want, you can get what you want, and we can kind of learn from each other. This get-along culture. I won't offend you, you won't offend me. And in fact, I can even put up a few pagan images of yours in my place of worship and you can host your events here and we'll host events, we'll do things together. Everybody can just be one big happy family. One archaeologist referred to this as the most synchronistic city he's ever uncovered. So the question is, if that's the backdrop on all of this, the question we have to ask is how had the church then fared in the first century in this climate? 
Have they shored up their doctrinal defenses? Have they stood on the truths of God's word and not compromised in the truth of who God is and been distinct and displaying the gospel so it's clearly seen as opposed to the other ideologies? Or like the citadel above and the synagogue below, have they allowed the pagan cultural ideologies to find a way in? I want you to notice Jesus' words. Starting in Revelation chapter 3, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. In other words, the one who sovereignly holds his church in his hands and imparts the full power of the Holy Spirit to aliven, to awaken his church. He says, I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive but you yourself are dead. In other words, you are no different than the city you find yourself in. A place with an amazing external reputation for its wealth and fortified strength, but in reality, you are not what you appear to be. The church had a greater perception of themselves as alive when in reality, such atrophy had set in and such compromise that they were no longer distinct. In fact, they were spiritually dead. And notice what Jesus says at the end of verse two. At the end of verse two, he says, for I have not found your works to be complete in the sight of my God. So what's the issue going on here? What we find is that this is a church that apparently started off strong in their work for God, but somehow along the way, they quit. They hit stride early on. They built up their fortresses of truth on God's word. But somewhere along the way, they just got comfortable in their relationship with God. They begin to let their guard down. They begin to drift. They begin to see apathy settle in. They got lulled to sleep. They found themselves living off of yesteryear's meals no active ongoing relationship with Jesus and certainly no building themselves up in the word of God and in the truth of God. And ultimately they had capitulated with the world around them. They began to allow the worldviews and the ideologies of the culture begin to sneak their way into the church and change their positions on what God had said was true. Just like the history of the citadel, this church had some gaps in their theological walls of defense. They had some holes in their theology that they had not shored up. And it left, with it, left them with the impression that they were stronger than they actually were. Having no idea there is an enemy right outside the walls of the church about to find its way in. Why is apathy such a big deal? Not only because it weakens us, it distances our relationship from God, it begins to destroy our own soul over time, like spiritual malnutrition, but ultimately when apathy plays itself out, it opens full-on doors for syncretism with non-truths that make you think they're true and you kind of just capitulate them with the word of God. 
That's the danger in syncretism. It distorts and it destroys the message of the gospel. It dilutes the message of the gospel and eliminates our distinctiveness in pointing people to Jesus Christ as the only one for our salvation. When Jesus said in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but through me. That's Jesus saying, I didn't come to partner and collaborate with all the competing worldviews. I came to conquer them. I came to overthrow them and not through physical violence, not through crusades, but through my death on a cross where I will substitute myself for a humanity that has rebelled against me. They deserve death. I will take it for them. And I will shed my blood in order to forgive them and cleanse them of all their unrighteousness that they would put their faith in me. And I have triumphantly raised from the dead so that I can give my bride new life. Jesus said, that's what I came to do. I came to conquer those ideologies, to bring you out of the domain of darkness into my marvelous light, to adopt you from Satan's orphanage into the family of God. And that can only happen through my broken body and my shed blood. There is no other path that can do that. But when you as a church begin to entertain cultural narratives that seem so relevant and so popular, but you have no idea that they actually run counter to the gospel, you lead people astray. You tell them that there's actually multiple paths and that they will not repent of their sin and turn to Jesus because they don't need Jesus. They can just add everything else in with Jesus. And this is what the church had done. And so for God's people to receive this message of truth in God's word, to have it sufficiently for them, and then to go radio silent with it over time, in the name of tolerance, all in an attempt to be accepted by a surrounding culture in order to avoid social pressure and religious persecution, that is to send a false and blasphemous message about who Jesus is to the onlooking world. And Jesus won't tolerate that because Jesus loves his church too much. And y'all, when we begin to do this as a church, when we begin to take Jesus's word and add things to it and tell people that it's okay for you to continue to worship these things over here and you can throw Jesus in the mix and put it all together, when we do that, that is not loving. That is actually outright cruel. If we were living in Sardis today and you were bleeding out, you needed to get to a hospital or you were going to die. And you came to me and asked, where can I go to get help and treatment so that I can actually live? And I, full well knowing, there's actually only one hospital in all of Sardis where you can get treated and be healed. But I simply look at you and go, hey, there's a, you can go choose anyone you want. They're all good. Let's all jump in. Just, just, just pick one. I mean, I know a guy here and a guy here and a guy here. That's not loving, that is cruel. So we've been given a message and a mission that is meant to be distinct from all other competing ideologies. Jesus said in Matthew 5, we're to be a, the church is to be a city on a hill. Man, everybody can see it in the darkness. They know where it is. We are to be the salt of the earth. We are a flavor additive and a, and, a, and a preservative to the decay that is in the culture around us by the sinfulness of the human heart. Peter said we're to be like lights, like stars shining in the world that everybody can see for a compass, for north stars as to where truth is found. Jesus prayed in John 17, we're to be in the world, yes, but we are not to be of the world. 
We are to be distinct. Now, we're not out there trying to pick fights and just debate people or debate people. We're not out there trying to be mean and, and non-shrewd. We're not trying to do that at all, but you have to understand if you're gonna preach the gospel, that message is going to offend. No matter how lovingly you try to package it, it is going to offend somebody's pride when you tell them that they are a sinner in need of a righteousness that they can't provide on their own, that they have to receive one as a gift of faith in Jesus Christ as the only God and creator of heaven and earth. That is not a popular message. It will be offensive no matter how you deliver it. But at the end of the day, if what you're after is not the truth of God's word and not the glory of God's name, but rather friendship with the world, just to be relevant, to be popular, to be, to be not persecuted, to be looked at with favor, if that's the end goal, then the end result will always lead towards capitulation and syncretism. It's why you can drive through Dallas right now. One of the things I love to do is I love to find churches and find the origin of them. I loved when I got here figuring out what was the origin of Northway and find out we now have a 70 year history here. And how did that start? What was that about? Some of the churches that are around us have done the same thing with them. We've got fascinating origin stories. Denominations built on the word of God and declared the gospel of Jesus Christ as the only way of salvation, who, who held fast to the doctrines that are revealed to us in this scripture that bear weight on our life, that we are to yield our lives to, and early forms of that church that preached that in Dallas, Texas, and you drive by today on some of these, and they're just shells. They're relics. Somewhere along the way, they departed. They have symbols and flags and identities of the cultural narratives that are hanging over their marquees. And the gospel is nowhere distinct anymore. You go, how do you get there? That doesn't happen overnight, y'all. That is a slow drift. It's a slow drift of compromise where you try to be culturally relevant at the expense of being biblically sound. You seek after the world's favor more than Jesus' favor. You allow your greatest consumption of truth not to come from God's word, but to come from your social media feeds, news platforms, and blogs, and deconstructing authors that are real popular right now. And you want to just digest them because it feels so, so resonates. And you don't realize that you're actually drifting like an astronaut losing its tether from the main ship, laziness and apathy sets in. You no longer hunger and thirst for God's word. You instead want to be entertained by the doctrines of our day. You know, Paul warned against this when he wrote to a young pastor in Ephesus named Timothy in 2 Timothy 4 when he said, I charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Meaning when you're seeing a lot of fruit and when there's no fruit at all, you be faithful. Preach the word, hold fast. Use God's word to reprove and rebuke and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but rather having their itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And they will turn away from listening to the truth 
and they will wander off in myths. Like Sardis, in the history of the city, this church had allowed gaps in their theological walls and false worship in their theological synagogues. They had not shored up their defenses. They had drifted, and it led to compromise. When this happens, what are we to do? And I say this in we because this applies to me as much as you. Let's be honest. All of us have seasons of drift. All of us have seasons of apathy and spiritual neglect where we feel dry and weary and we feel disenchanted with God or the church. All of us have those moments, seasons where we're tempted to coast, where we're where we let our guard down, we quit growing, we begin drinking from the culture around us. When we find ourselves doing that or when that's pointed out to us, what should our response be? What is Jesus's counsel? We see this. It starts there in verse, third, verse two. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die like the citadel's history. You have some spiritual neglect that you've left unprotected. And if you don't come out of this spiritual coma you're in and get serious in a wartime mentality about shoring up your spiritual neglect, your church is gonna die. So what do you do? Jesus says three things. Sounds similar to Ephesus when he says, remember then what you have received and heard Keep it and repent. Remember, go back to where you started, how it all began, where the gospel first came to you and you were overjoyed with the good news of forgiveness that you have found out you have received as a gift from God through Jesus Christ back when the deposit of his truth was made into your account, when you would open God's word and it was a joy, it was a delight because you just kept learning about who God is and how he made you to be and how he has provided the necessary resources in Jesus Christ and the power of the spirit to form you into his image again. And, and you delighted in this truth. It was like a feast at an all-you-can-eat buffet eating the choicest of morsels. You remember that when God's word was your North Star. When you needed direction, when you needed in a crazy upside down world and you needed to know what is right side up, you would turn to God's word and it was there. And Jesus says, once you've captured that image back again, keep it. Don't let it go. The word keep there also be translated guard. Paul said the same thing to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 14. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit that has been entrusted to you. Once you remember the truthfulness of God's word, power of God's word, keep it. Guard it. It's a military term that indicates the truth that was first handed to you. It is going to be attacked. It's just going to be attacked. When you first believe in Jesus and you receive his word and his truth and you open this word and you hold to it, it's going to be attacked. Someone is going to make an attempt to steal it from you. It's a fact. You've got to guard it. Just like the citadel on top of that Acropolis, all the wealth that was stored in there 
you're going to have to put the treasure of God's truth on lockdown. And you're going to have to shore up those walls of defense. And you're going to have to hold fast and defend against the attacks that are going to come on it, not give yourself to it. And what's the consequence if we won't? You see this at the end of verse 3. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will know, you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Does that sound familiar? Do you think that the church living in this city, hearing those words, understood what that meant in the history of their city? A thief coming when everybody else is sleeping, when nobody's aware of it, and when they least expected it, came in and took it? Oh, they know. Jesus is saying here, you think you're safe and secure. You think your walls are protected, but you're not. And if you don't shore up those defenses, these areas that have been compromised, and here's the crazy thing, it's not just any random person that's going to come in in the middle of the night and take it. Jesus says, it's going to be me. I'm going to be the one who's going to come in through your your lack of defense, and I'm going to come in there, and I'm going to take what's rightfully mine back. Jesus isn't playing around here. Why? Because he loves his church too much to let them be this nominal for this long. He'll come in and he'll wage war on his own church if he has to. Now, the good news, and praise God, there's good news here in Sardis. It's not all bad. There are some good things about this church. You see in verse four, you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments. There's a few that are remaining who are faithful. And I promise you, they will walk with me in white for they are worthy The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. Do you remember what this city was famous for producing? They sure knew it. Togas, baby. Jesus says the majority of the church here, there are a few that have been faithful. But the majority of the church, this has become not just an individual problem, it's become a corporate problem. The majority of the church has been soiling their garments through compromised living. Soiled garments has the idea of brushing up against, you taking these beautiful white robes and you brush up against something dirty and that dirty thing rubs off on you. That's the idea of soiled garments. This is what happens when you trade the rabbi for Rome, when you trade the word of God for the world. And it had soiled the church here in Sardis. And he says there's a few who haven't though. God always has a remnant. There are some who continue to walk in faithfulness with Jesus and Jesus assures the church to the ones who remain faithful, who hold fast to my word, who will not drift and compromise, but will daily shore up these defenses and stand on the word of God. There is some eternal togas that are waiting for you. And he says also at the end of verse five, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Those pillars that were in that synagogue of those 80 Jewish names who had donated and compromised, do you know whose names weren't included were theirs? The faithful. You know where the faithful's names are written? They're not on that synagogue. They're on the eternal one. They are written in the Lamb's book of life. If you have put your trust in Jesus Christ, you have been purchased by his blood and you are holding fast to the one who holds fast to you. 
Your name right now is etched forever in the Lamb's Book of Life and will never be blotted out. If there was some archaeological excavation that we get to do in heaven, we're going to find our names up in there already. Written in there before the foundation of the world by the God who loved you, who sent his son for you. And so hold fast. He says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So what do we do with this text, y'all? Same thing we're doing with every one of them in this series. This is week five. We have two more to go. We got to ask ourselves some real hard but needed questions. I have had a series of questions I've been asking myself based on this text. This week would ask us as a church to do the same thing, both individually and corporately over the next six days leading up to our next gathering. But let me ask this. If you were to take an inventory of your spiritual life right now, here's some questions that I think might be helpful to ask in light of this. One, are there any hidden doors in your life right now, either in your morality or in your doctrine? Hidden doors that not everybody knows about, but the enemy does. Who's looking for an entrance into your life right now, who's looking for an entrance into our church right now to try to take us out. Are there any hidden areas? If there are, morally or theologically, and bring them into the light. Try to hide that on your own. Bring that into the light. Involve other brothers and sisters in Christ who can walk with you. We can help shore up those doors. We can help together reinforce this fortification, whether it's morally or doctrinally that can help us defend better against the attacks of the enemy who wants to use those compromised doors to find an entrance in. It's the same thing that Paul writes to the church at Ephesus at Ephesus 4 when he talks about, don't give the devil a foothold. Because when we have hidden sins, unconfessed sins in our life, unconfessed compromises, that's where the enemy gets a foothold. It's the image of somebody hiking uh, the, the face of a mountain and you give the enemy a grasp to actually knock you down. Secondly, I'd ask also, are there any places in your defenses where right now, if we're honest, the vultures are beginning to gather and they're going undisturbed? Are there areas in your life that aren't being patrolled right now? Areas where you've just gotten comfortable, where you just said, I don't need to give attention to that. I, I got that one covered. I got that one shored up. You know, we're good. And I'll just, I'll pay more attention over here. And you're leaving an area, again, morally or doctrinally, it's exposed. Then let's repent of that. Let's shore that up. Let's turn from that. Let's strengthen those areas. Are there areas of your faith right now where you've just begun to coast, where you've begun to drift, where you've begun to compromise? Areas where your growth in Christ maybe has plateaued. You know, one of the greatest check engine lights to your spiritual health is when you start referring to your spiritual vitality in the past tense. When the best that you can do is look back to your youth group days to remember the last time that you were walking with the Lord faithfully, that's a check engine light. If your life is merely a monument to what was rather than a living testimony and a living altar to what is, It's a check engine light. Give it attention. Open the hood. Get some others to look under it. Let us repent by turning to the grace of Jesus Christ that is always there to meet us. 
the forgiveness of Christ that clothes us. And let's receive God's word, the correcting conviction of the Holy Spirit. Let's conform our lives to the truths of his word and let us hold fast to the very end. Even my prayer is that God would just bring a revival, would wake up a lot of the churches here in Dallas and man, we'd band together and be a light of the gospel. But if every other congregation around us folds, my prayer is that Northway, at the end of this time, however long of a run we've got on this earth that God gives us, we would be a citadel. This would be a city on a hill. This would be a fortified city where God's truth and God's gospel are on lockdown and displayed so everybody can see it and know without a shadow of a doubt who Jesus Christ is and receive the invitation not to have to sneak in through the back door, but to come in through the front of salvation through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ and be saved. Amen, church. And let us hear the word that the spirit is saying. And let us adjust our lives to it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for the needed reproof of areas that maybe we have allowed our defenses to be weakened, to live off of yesterday's meals and not feast upon the truth of your word and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Where those areas are present, Lord, both individually and corporately as a church, Holy Spirit, would you convict us? Would you lead us towards repentance? Would you give us disciplines that include daily abiding in the Lord, daily praying and confessing sin, daily involving community here at the church that we can open our lives and vulnerabilities to and sharpen one another and encourage one another so, Lord, we can play the long game and not settle for the cheap breadcrumbs of ideologies of this world. Let us live distinct. Fuel us, God, to live for your glory, built on your truth, demonstrating your love. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Well, church, not a better thing we can do right now than to actually go back and remember the truth of God's word that came to us in Jesus Christ and our salvation. If you're a member helping with communion, I'd love for you to head to the back and begin passing out the elements. This is a meal that Jesus Christ has ordained in even in shadow and symbol form for the church to constantly remember and never forget how we were saved and the grace of God that has been made available to us in Jesus Christ. If you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, if you're not a member of Northway Church in good standing, we pray that you would hold off on this meal. This meal is intended for believers. One of the ways that we affirm our salvation Christ, our testimonies is here in local membership. And so if you are not a member of Northway or a member in good standing in another church, we'd ask you to hold off. Instead, we'd ask you to consider the person and work of Jesus Christ, that your heart might be rent to Jesus in faith, that you would transfer your trust in yourself and your own works to the all-satisfying, sufficient work of Jesus on the cross for you through his broken body and his shed blood. But to the rest of us who have, what an incredible treat for us to, in keeping with Jesus' command, remember, remember how this all started so that we wouldn't forget. Paul wrote to the church at Corinth when he said, I received from the Lord what I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he's betrayed, he took bread. 
And when he had given thanks, he broke the bread and he said, this is my body, which is for you. And you're to do this in remembrance of me. This was a way in the Passover meal on the night before Jesus went to the cross as they shared in this meal that every Jew would every year at the same time, remembering God's faithful deliverance of his people out of Egypt. Jesus reminds his disciples right then or tells his disciples right then, this meal has always been about me. Your deliverance isn't out of the bondage of Egypt. It's out of the bondage of sin. And your redeemer is not just a lamb whose life was sacrificed and blood was shed so that you can be saved. It's from me, the lamb of God who is sent to give my life for you. And so church, when we take this bread, we remember that sin demanded a substitute because we couldn't pay the price, but God was faithful to provide it. We take this bread in memory of Christ's body that was broken for us to him. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper saying the cup is the cup of the new covenant that is in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. In other words, Jesus said, the way that you're going to receive the white robe of forgiveness is not through your own works, it's through mine. Through my shed blood that pays the ultimate sacrifice for your sins. Drink this in remembrance of me to Christ's blood. And so with that, Father, we just boast in the cross. We have no other boast of our own. We don't gather here this day to celebrate and remember the great works that we have done to bring about successes in our life. We gather today as sinners simply to celebrate how grace came to us in Jesus Christ, his broken body, his shed blood that has ransomed us, sealed our forgiveness for all eternity. And in light of that, Lord, would you help us then to stand firm on the word of Jesus Christ, to not compromise, to not bend the knee, but to go back and to keep to guard what has been entrusted to us, that we may now be faithful to go out and give it away to others who so desperately need it. For your glory, for our good, in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Northway Church. A podcast should never replace gathering with God's people to worship Jesus. So we want to encourage you to be a part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 11.15, and 4 p.m., and would love for you to join us as we encounter the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus.